So last week, uh, Brandon taught us about groaning for something greater. Um, you know, we live in a world that's infected by sin. Uh, we experience the effects of sin along with creation. Um, we groan under the weight of that brokenness as we wait for Jesus to renew all things. And part of that groaning is what we would call lament. Um, and so today, we're going to learn from Psalm 22 how to lament. At least a little bit. I am no expert in lament, but I think that this psalm gives us uh, a really good picture of what that can look like. Um, I chose this passage, um, again, especially with all the things that the leaders are going through in mind, but also because we all face all kinds of grief in this life. Uh, looking around the room, I can see you know, I, I see mental health issues, I see medical issues, I see harmful relationships, pandemics, uh, sin struggles, national tragedies that hit close to home. Uh, we're surrounded by grief all the time, but I don't think that we often know what we're supposed to do with it. You know, how do we handle grief? We tend to approach grief, I think, by either dismissively trying to move on really fast or as unhappy customers dissatisfied with God's service. Um, lament does neither of these things. Lament expresses sorrow. Lament helps us to weep. Um, and when we lament, we hold God to his own promises. We say to God, you're good and just and present and faithful, but look at what's going on. Where are you? Lament allows us to grapple deeply with the confusion, the doubt, the disappointment that comes from living in a broken world while also clinging tightly to God's promises. This is why I think lament is crucial to the church's life and mission. It allows us to fully engage with our own sorrow and the sorrows of the people around us. It helps us work through our grief until we reach hope. If we want to grow to maturity in Christ, if we want to reach the lost, if we want to proclaim the hope of Christ, then I believe we must learn to lament. Psalm 22, our passage today, can be divided into three sections that take us through a journey of grief from despair to celebration. In the first section, we'll learn how to be brutally honest with God as we wrestle through the ups and downs of grief and sorrow. In the second, we'll see that honest wrestling in this way actually brings us closer to God and hope can begin to take hold in us again. In our final section, we'll see three ways that we can celebrate God's deliverance when he does come through. Our, we'll have two key words today um, for, for kids. Um, if you tally them up and hand them into the welcome team, after five weeks of tallies, you'll receive a prize. Um, so our key words today are lament and deliverance, or you know any forms of those words. As we walk through each section of this psalm as well, we'll pause for about two minutes. Um, I've got some pens and paper. I'm actually going to ask Manny and Joshua, if you guys wouldn't mind handing these out to anyone who needs them. If you have a journal or if you prefer to use your phone, that's totally fine. But I want us to be able to take a couple of minutes um, at a couple of points in the sermon to reflect 
on an aspect of lament that we have, we've looked at in this psalm. Um, and the pen and paper just for you to be able to write down a couple of thoughts if you need to. So let's begin. In our first section, again, we'll see that we'll see the emotional roller coaster that lament can be. Um, so as I read through this section again, Manny did a fantastic job of um, of reading through the first three verses. As I as I read through this section, listen for those ups and downs. Let's see if this works. Hey, all right. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So we begin in the middle of David's turmoil. He's groaning. He's restless. He cries out to God in confusion and frustration. His words are harsh and pointed. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? You do not answer. His pain is emphasized by the fact that God is his God. So why is he forsaken? Why does God not hear him? He's bold and raw and honest in his doubt. And he says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So David's looking for something to hold on to in the sea of despair that he's drowning in. David's ancestors trusted God and saw God come through. He rescued them. He heard them. They were not put to shame. God delivered Israel so many times that Israel's stream of continual praises has formed a metaphorical throne for God. And David looks to this throne in his distress. He also draws this really interesting connection between God's holiness and his faithfulness. God's holiness is displayed in his faithfulness. Since God is holy, he can be trusted. His deliverance is an outworking of his holiness. But then he says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. So God has rescued in the past, but David is the exception or so he thinks. He's a worm and God doesn't rescue worms. They dwell in death. They thrive on rottenness. They're trampled under people's feet. They are fish bait. And he feels like a worm because everyone around him scorns and despises him. They know that David trusts in God. They know that David waits for rescue. They know that David claims that God delights in him. Therefore, David's condition provokes their mockery. In fact, I think that they reinforce his worst fears, that his trust will prove vain, that God will not rescue, and that God does not actually delight in him. So this is our first section, and there are two big things that I want us to learn about lament from these verses. First, lament lets us be honest with God. We may feel abandoned and neglected by God. We may cry day and night without rest. We may feel like worthless exceptions to God's promises. We may accuse God of unfaithfulness. 
We may get beat down by people in our lives. We may feel ridiculous for ever having believed that God was loving and trustworthy. Psalm 22 teaches us to bring all of that to God on full blast. Experiencing and expressing these things does not make us bad Christians. None of this means that our faith in God is not real. David cries out to God as his God. Lament is an expression of his faith. It's because of our faith in God that our confusion and our grief and our doubt stings so badly. We cry out because we want to be close to God, because we believe that he's good, that he is sovereign and that he hears us. But we see absolutely no evidence of it in the present and it confuses and frightens us. Now, God does not just look at us and say, stop feeling that way. You just have to trust me more. He gives us Psalm 22 to express those things directly to him. This passage is an invitation to take all of your doubts, fears, and anger to God himself. In Christ, we have even more confidence to lament this way. Jesus is our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He endured the full depth of human experience. In fact, these very verses were on his lips as he hung on the cross. The author of Hebrews tells us that this means that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy in our need. No amount of brutal honesty will cause God to turn you away. So lament gives Christians a place to recognize and express these things as an extension of our faith. It helps us affirm to ourselves and each other that despair and doubt are nothing to be ashamed of. The second thing is that lament isn't a straight line. It's messy, confusing, and contradictory. There we go. David accuses God of abandonment, of being deaf and mute. Then David tries to find comfort in God's past faithfulness to Israel. But then David's hope doesn't hold. He's back, he's back into despair. I find this to be a very accurate description of the wrestling that I've experienced in my own grief and my own doubt. I feel pulled between the truths I know about God and the despair I feel dragging me down. I know that God is holy and present and faithful. I know that God says he loves me, but I don't see him anywhere and I feel utterly worthless. I know that God has rescued me and others before, but I wonder if I made it all up. One minute I may see light at the end of the tunnel and the next I feel completely left in the dark again. This is the nature of grief and lament. It's back and forth, up and down. And if you're anything like me, you probably hate it. I like things to work in straight lines. I want to be able to approach grief and doubt like a project. I want to find the answers and move on. But that's just not how it works. Psalm 22 teaches us to deal with this by taking it all to God. We keep crying out to, long, to, to God for as long as it takes. It may not bring the results that we want, and it may not bring them when we want them. But as we will see, it will bring us closer to God. It is a pathway to hope. So I want us to take two minutes here um, to, to reflect on, on, these, on these ideas. If you were to be brutally honest with God right now, what would you say to him? If you're not in a place of doubt or grief, that's great. Use this time to consider the struggles of someone that you know. What might they be feeling toward God right now? Have you 
a little awkward just sitting in silence, isn't it? But I hope that it's helpful. In our second section, we see hope rekindled in David's heart, even as his circumstances don't shift in the least. As I read this passage, listen for the shift in David's attitude. Up to this point, he's accused God of forsaking him. He's had a moment of hope in God's past faithfulness, but then declared himself a worm, unworthy of God's promises. Now he says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Even as he despairs of his worth and God's faithfulness, he remembers God's tender presence from the day that he was born. God brought him into the world. He took David from his mother's womb. Even as David nursed, God was there caring for him. He's depended on God his entire life. He owes his entire existence to God. You can still see some hints of confusion in this passage. Despite his lifelong trust and dependence on God, God hasn't rescued him. But this enables him to, for the first time in this psalm, actually call out to God for help. This seems to be a turning point for David. God cared for him at his most vulnerable and most helpless. Now David is vulnerable and helpless again. Perhaps God really will be there for him, just as he has been before. Yet, even though his faith has been rekindled, his circumstances remain, and he describes them in terrifying detail. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. He's surrounded by enemies on every side. He's stripped down to his bones. He's become a plaything. They gamble for his clothes. He describes them as animals. They're bulls with wide open mouths. They're lions, ravenous and roaring. They're dogs waiting to tear him apart. David is poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart melts inside of his chest. His strength is dried up like a piece of clay. His tongue sticks to his mouth. He can't cry for help. He's so starved that he can see his bones. And again, we still see hints of his turmoil toward God. Though he's crying out to God for help, he also says that God is the one that lays him in the dust of death. But then he says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David sees both himself and God differently now. He calls God my help. David is no longer a worm, but a precious life worth saving. He calls God to action. He pleads with God to act visibly and quickly. And in the very last phrase, God responds. 
David says that God has rescued him. It's as if God swooped in at the very last minute. So there are two things that we can learn from this section as well about lament. First, lament leads to hope. Though through David's honest wrestling with God, hope starts to take hold in him again. He calls on God for help with a a new air of confidence that God will actually respond to him. He sees himself as someone that God would save, someone whose life is precious. For David, this shift takes place because he remembers that God has been with him for his entire life. He knows that he has no other option but for God to intervene. If you're anything like me, you probably find it tempting to try and skip to this point in the process of lament. You want to jump past the doubting, the back and forth, the self-loathing. You want to treat these verses like that auto-igniting coal that you throw in your grill. Um, You put these verses in, stick a match on them, and then boom, faith reignited and you can move on. But I would argue that David only arrives at this point because of what has come before. He has wrestled with his grief, confusion, and anger. And as he wrestled, he drew near to God, and God began to transform him. We don't see how this took place in the inner workings of David's heart, but we do see the results. God transforms David's vision of how both he and his circumstances relate to God. We too have to patiently and painstakingly let the process take as long as God allows. If we try to skip any part of our grief, it's like a zit that we don't fully drain. It just comes back. Our role is to wrestle. We bring our grief and confusion to God in full. We let him work in us in his time. And we can do this because God, because Jesus has secured our standing before God. Jesus and the Holy Spirit guarantee that God will see us through to the end. He will bring to completion the good work that he has begun in you. Second, lament calls God to action. There are two parts to this. The first is to fully describe our circumstances to God. And the second is to boldly ask God to intervene. Once again, I normally prefer to skip the first part. I prefer not to dwell on my circumstances. I would rather... I would, I, would, yeah, I would rather stay in that moment of tender remembrance, you know, God being with me from the day I was born, or I just want to skip to praising God. Um, but part of lament is describing what you're going through to God. We bring the things that grieve and terrify us to him. We can do this because God cares for us. This is why Peter tells us to cast all of our anxieties on God. And Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God invites us to throw our burdens onto him. He will carry them with us. He understands because he's experienced these things too. Jesus has been surrounded by vicious enemies. His body was broken, his bones out of joint. He's been stripped down to skin and bones with soldiers gambling for his clothes. He's been beaten. He, he suffered these things for our redemption. And now he's our advocate. He's our burden bearer. I don't do the second part very well either. When I consider the way that I ask God for help, it's very different from David. And maybe it is for you too. I don't call God to action. My prayers are usually more timid and less direct. It's more like submitting a heavenly work order. 
Instead of asking God to deliver me, I ask for endurance. Instead of pleading with God to come quickly, I ask him to help me accept my circumstances. And there is good in these things. Um, He does give us endurance, and we do need to learn contentment in every circumstance, no doubt. But David's example is also to bring our circumstances to God and boldly plead with him to do something. Psalm 22 doesn't give us any guarantees about how and when God will act. And he, it may be by giving us endurance and contentment. He may deliver by providing a way of escape from whatever we're experiencing. He may remove the oppressor. He may give us a series of small deliverances, little things, one bit at a time. And so this reminds us that, that the primary goal of lament, of all of this, is to bring us close to God. And as we boldly cry out to God for real rescue, we draw nearer to him. And as we draw near to him, we are strengthened. We do endure. We do find contentment. God works on our hearts. And when he does act, we'll know it. We'll be ready to take whatever next step that he lays before us. So let's take another two minutes here to reflect. What do you long to see God do in your circumstances? If you have arrived at a place of hope, what was your turning point? Up to this point, we've seen, we've seen David wrestle with his doubt. 
We've seen him cling to hope. Uh, we've seen him reach a turning point um, where he can remember God's tenderness and his love and where he can cry out for help and describe his circumstances to God. And then we saw right at the end, right? He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. We saw that God swooped in and saved him. And so in our final section, uh, we, we get to, to learn from David how we can celebrate when God does deliver, when he does come through. David says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David publicly announces what God has done for him. He stirs up others to praise God in response to his deliverance. David felt despised, but God has not despised his affliction. He felt abandoned, but God heard his cries. He desperately cried out in despair, and now he's desperate to cry out God's praises. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. He recognizes that God is the reason he celebrates. So he fulfills vows that he made to God, which he would carry out when God rescued him. It's possible, based on uh, the second half, which is verse 26, that he either donated food to the poor or provided a meal for the afflicted as a sign of gratitude. This may have also been a way to pass on God's relief to those still in affliction. Verse 26 also functions as a celebration that God does restore the afflicted. Those who seek God will praise him, and God exuberantly wishes them eternal life, rejoicing in restoration. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall, oops, where are we? There we go. Um, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. There we go. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So David moves from celebrating his deliverance locally, right, in the congregation among the brothers, to celebrating it as part of God's redemptive story that spans all of history. His rescue now gives him confidence in God's eventual perfect reign over all the world. The entire world will turn to the Lord. Every family and every nation, the rich and the poor, the living and the dead, they will recognize God as king of the nations, holy and righteous. He is the one who made them. They will go down to the dust, but he reigns forever. In recognition of God's righteousness, they will worship him. They will bow down. They will serve him. They will proclaim his faithfulness, his glory, and his righteousness to generation after generation. 
And so this passage teaches us three things about celebrating God's deliverance. First, declare God's praises to the people of God. We often do the opposite of what David does, or at least I do. I can make a big deal out of something that upsets me, but when it's resolved, I don't really say anything anymore. I just kind of let it fade to black. Instead, when we see God come through, we should declare our deliverance just as much as we declared our sorrow. This also points us to the communal aspect of lament and deliverance. Our church is a people that rejoices together and weeps together. Your deliverance is an opportunity not only for you to worship, but for others to worship with you. Your victory is a reason for all of us to celebrate, especially if we have mourned with you. And our weeping and our rejoicing join in that stream of praise that started with Adam to Abraham to Moses to Jesus to the present day. That, um, that David said that God was enthroned upon. Second, express thankfulness in tangible ways. Worship is not only a matter of words, but also of our actions. And this includes comforting each other as God comforts us. We pass it on. Even as we rejoice, we weep with the afflicted. So channel your zeal that comes out of your deliverance to walk alongside others in their suffering. Third, you can locate your lament and deliverance in the context of God's redemptive story. When God does deliver us, it should turn our thoughts and our praises toward the ultimate deliverance promised in Jesus' return. Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, now sits in authority above all earthly powers. One day, he will come back. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. All people will bow before him in worship. He will judge the living and the dead. If you do not yet follow Jesus, then this should concern you. You will bow before Jesus no matter what, but you can choose to bow now in love, or you can bow later in terror. For those of us who do not follow Jesus, as terrible, I mean, I'm sorry, as for those of us who do follow Jesus, as terrible as our present sufferings are, we can know that they are part of a larger story in which God is moving the entire universe toward redemption. Our present deliverances are a foretaste of when Jesus will set all things right. Let's take a final two minutes. If you're in a place to praise God for your deliverance, how can you express your thankfulness to God? If you're still in a place of mourning, how can you rejoice with those who rejoice?
I hope that these two minute breaks have been helpful, um, helpful for you. Um, we've got another 10 to 15 minutes uh, remaining during this time. Um, and I want us to use that to, out of those reflections, to share with each other and pray together. Um, so get into groups of two or three. Um, share as much as you're comfortable sharing. There's no pressure to divulge the deepest secrets of your heart to people that you don't know. Um, but please do share as much as you can. Um, allow people to mourn with you or to rejoice with you, to pray with you. Um, if you're in a group with someone that you don't know, um, especially if they're a first-time visitor here, please take the time to get to know them a little bit first. Um, we, can, we don't want to make them too uncomfortable by you know, diving straight into to the meat of things. Um, but hopefully, um, it'll, it'll be a good opportunity for us to, again, minister to one another as the body of Christ. So go ahead and do that. <laughs>